the crazy thoughts are always the ones that make it. <laughs> <laughs> trying, man. I'm trying. It's uh, it's awesome to find people though that are so passionate about the sport and um, you know, all in. Uh, it, it's your everything you tweet out or share on social media. I mean, it's completely motivating. It's uplifting. It's you're you're doing a lot of good stuff, man. And when you're uh, you know, at a big time program or wherever your path leads, uh, I, I, I won't be surprised because you've worked your ass off to get there. So I really appreciate that, man. This is the On the Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. In episode five of On the Touchline, I talked to soccer coach Colton Bryant. Colton is the head women's soccer coach at Columbia State Community College in Columbia, Tennessee. Colton absolutely brings it in this episode, talking about his journey of dealing with three torn ACL injuries in his playing days, what team culture is all about, positivity, and working in Argentina for a period of time at Leo Messi's youth club, Club Atletico Knowles Old Boys. I think you'll find this episode absolutely enlightening. And as I tweeted out recently, I could listen to Colton talk about soccer all day long. This is a listener-supported podcast, and you can support the show in one of two ways, by going to Anchor. Dot fm slash on the touchline all one word and financially supporting the show and helping us keep the lights on or by subscribing and retweeting sharing liking commenting and leaving a, a five-star review of this podcast found on major podcasts like apple google spotify anchor uh, among others I hope you enjoy my conversation with Columbia State Community College head women's soccer coach, Colton Bryant. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the touchline. And, um, you know, it's funny. I I told Shannon Matthews uh, this back in episode one that for as many messages as you and I have traded on social media, emails, emails. you know, what have you, uh, I'm glad we finally have a chance to actually talk to one another. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so good stuff. So, um, tell, uh, the, the listeners a little bit about your soccer journey and how, <clears throat> and how you got to where you are, uh, currently in your coaching career. Oh Lord. Um, well, I guess I started playing when I was young and I, it was something that I don't know how I picked up or why it even happened because none of my family played nothing. Um, I just, it was something I did. And then as I got older, um, I decided I wanted to play in college. And there was, I guess a little bit of backstory to it is um, I was actually born with a deformity of broken ankles. It was never supposed to be able to walk. And once I learned that as I got older, I was like, wow, now I play soccer. I don't know how that happened, but, it was just sort of like an intrinsic motivation for me to make sure I could play in college. Well, long story short, 
I ended up going, I got a scholarship to the University of Kentucky, but I tore my ACL and I lost it. And uh, I ended up going to Martin Methodist. And I was kind of upset because Martin Methodist was locally to where I was in Tennessee. And, but anyway, the coach had told me, um, we'll win the national championship in two years. And I was like, well, <laughs> the men's program's never been ranked. I don't know how that's going to happen. But sure enough, push come to shove, my freshman year, I was a, going into my freshman year, I had recovered and I was going to be ready to play. Um, and <laughs> I ended up playing semi-pro that summer. And when I played semi-pro, I tore my ACL again. Uh, for the second time and then during the recovery process I tore it a third time so I didn't actually get to play in my collegiate career due to three ACL tears but I he gave me the opportunity to become a student coach and I really didn't want to do it I I didn't think it was for me but he had me start doing camps little camps clinics and whatnot and then after I did the camps and clinics I decided hey you know what I'm good at this This is something I like doing Um, and then I got to be a student coach for the college team. And the next thing I know, my sophomore year, the second year that he spoke about, we won the national title, and that was in 2013. And it was it was really interesting, really cool. It was a, a very good journey. But um, then he got a big job at the University of California State Bakersfield, which is actually where Gary Kearney was at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and um, so he left, and – Basically, I, I liked doing those camps and clinics, and he gave me all the contacts to them. So I started calling everyone and asking if they wanted to do camps and clinics. It would be through me instead of him, but I was the one that was uh, doing them anyway. He set them up, and I went and coached them. And um, I decided to put a name to it, and that's how my academy, Premier Football Tech, was actually born. It started as just the camp thing, and then – I realized that I was broke in college and I needed to find a way to make more money while being able to still be at all of our college practices and schooling and all that. So I started um, calling around trying to get kids to do, you know, training on a regular basis. And I ended up finding a club in a city that was about 30 minutes away from us, but I found a club that was sort of dying. And I proposed, you know, how about we do a partnership? And sure enough, we did. So it was like a training-based company where all I did was the training. But during the the trainings, they wore my training gear. We bought warm-ups. We had all that. But when we went to games, they wore their uniforms. But I always wore um, my training stuff at games because I wanted to be able to get that brand out. And it it actually helped because a club that came out of nowhere, um, all of a sudden, we – we were winning games and then it was there was basically the city was split into two there was a club that had girls and a club that had guys and I was with the guys at the time and then once the guys started doing good the girls director calls and says well hey how about we start doing some some stuff and the next thing you know I worked with them for about four or five years on the boys and girls side basically merging the two clubs together which is how it should have been in that city in the first place it wasn't a big enough city to have two different clubs but um then we ended up taking the high school team to a state tournament on the girls' side. We had three girls go to Division One schools. Um, and then off of that, I just I, – I stayed with the, the college coaching, and then I had an opportunity. I was in Mexico, and I remember I was in my house first, 
and I applied for the New York Red Bulls. They had an academy job uh, position open. And I remember I applied and I post on uh, Facebook and all that. And all my friends, I was just like, you know, I applied. Worst thing they could do is call me back. Well, I was in Mexico and my phone rings and I look up and it's like plus something. It was like, I think it was Scotland. So whatever the country code is for Scotland. And it, it was a guy calling from the New York Red Bulls. And he's, I got offered an academy job there or I had another opportunity when I graduated college where I had started as a field marshal, just out calling out scores, just trying to make money on the weekends. And um, I actually worked my way up in that company to, I had the opportunity to become a senior tournament director. And it was either go to the New York Red Bulls or go be a full-time tournament director while taking an academy job in South Florida. Well, Anyone that knows me knows I don't do cold weather. So I decided, um, you know, if, I, if, I, if the New York Red Bulls was meant to be, if, if that route was what I meant to do, then it'll end up coming back around. I'm young, so I went to Florida. I wanted to live on the beach. And uh, so that's what I did. And I got to do – it was two full-time jobs, really, but I worked myself to death because I was doing my master's degree at the time. But basically my days went where I woke up at 7. I would be – I would eat. And then I would go at eight o'clock to noon. I would be in an office recruiting for tournaments. And then at noon, I'd try and eat again before I left. So we'd go to do after school or during school sessions, really, to where we went to recesses and did a development program at schools during recess for um, middle school ages. And then we got some high schools that let us do it with their high school team. So basically, instead of the soccer players having gym, they had development sessions for their uh, PE. And so we went and did that in high schools. And then after that, we would drive um, back home, which it was. So those sessions were in Jupiter, Florida, and we lived. And well, and then we had an academy in Stewart, Florida. So we drive 30 minutes back to Stewart, Florida. and We did an academy sessions from five to they started about five and we'd end about eight. We'd have two teams every night. Uh, so I have my two, I'd have four teams I'd train, but I would have my two and then I would buddy coach for two with some of the other coaches. Cause all the coaches were full-time coaches. It was one of the only clubs that ever had full-time coaches. And, um, so what we did off that was after that, I would then go, so I'd get done about eight, eight thirty, And then I'd go into my office and do my master's degree work till about midnight and then wake up and do it again the next day. Well, so, um, I don't know, just a lot of networking happened. And it actually, when I when I first moved back to Tennessee, it had nothing to do with uh, starting this college program. It had every, I was going to be a director of player development for a club. And, um, and we were going to attach the academy to it because I tried to always keep my academy going. Actually, it while I was away in Tennessee, my academy was going. My friend was just the, um, the guy running all the things at the time. And... Um, when I came back, I wanted to not only do the director of player development, I was trying to find a way to attach the academy and we couldn't do it. And I, I also there was like some pay issues that came up and it was different than what they had told me when I moved. So I ended up not doing that. And I just went to the, the local college that didn't have a soccer team and I asked them, would, uh, would you guys like to start a women's soccer program? And they, they were interested. I had to the athletic director told me write a budget. Um, we'll see what we can do. 
So I went and I looked up the local other community colleges that had maybe what they did, what their budget was uh, on their past year. And I tried to like work it off them. Well, I give it everything in and about four months later, I get a message four to six months. I can't remember exactly. I get a message back and they said, you know, I, I, I don't want you to not take a job anywhere else, but I'm not sure that this is going to go through because we haven't heard back on it. And I said, well, okay. Um, so I started applying elsewhere and I actually got a, I, I called that coach that I was with at Martin Methodist and um, an opportunity arose at Cal State Bakersfield, but also their club, which was in the USDA. And I was going to be able to work for both those. So I accepted that job. Well, the day I, well, the day after I accepted that job, Columbia State called and they said, hey, we, um, we just got approved. Do you want to, do you still want to go through with it? So then I was in a predicament, move to California or stay here and start the program. Uh, California probably would have been better in terms of pay or in terms of, you know, I guess getting through the ranks quicker because I would have had opportunity to work with a division one school and USDA club or um, stay, stay home basically and do the Columbia state uh, route. So I called the coach. He'd always been a mentor to me and, he basically said, you know, you can do this, which will help you. It'll be, you, you know, you'll move, like I said, quicker. But he said, or you can take the harder road. And no matter what happens, no matter where I'm at, you can always find it. Like you always have a place where I'm at because I worked with him for so long. He goes, you could try and write your own story at Columbia State. He goes, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you still end up here. But um, you, you got to start a program. You added that to your resume. So I was like, well, okay. Um, let's do that. I've always been one for doing the, the hard road anyway. So that's what I did. And that's sort of where I'm at right now. I always love that, uh, you're a, a road less traveled guy. And, uh, you know, if, uh, everybody's going one direction, you're probably, uh, one of a handful of people going the other direction. And I, uh, you know, ever since we've been able to connect, um, you know, you, you mentioned a word that, really brought us together uh, in terms of mentorship. And uh, talk a little bit about that, of the importance. I guess it doesn't really matter where a coach is in their journey, but having either a person or people that a coach can go to for advice, for, you know, to talk about some of the challenges to help decision-making when it comes to, you know, because uh, let's face it, you go to California, life's a lot different, right? Than, right. than staying in Tennessee. uh, Yeah. So how do, you know, the importance of having those people in your life that you can go to and and work through, you know, difficult, difficult things or sometimes easy things that that come up. What's that been like for you? It's been, it's been great. Um, It's funny that, you know, the road, the road less traveled that we spoke about, but I also picked my mentors very interestingly, like, this coach is one of the best ones I've ever had, but he's also one of the most demanding ones I've ever seen. Um, he knows, he knows tactically he's one of the best coaches I've ever seen, but at the same time, he, I don't know. It's the way he dealt with the players. That was so weird. Like if you didn't know him, you would hate him. Like you'd think, wow, this guy is rude, but he really, it was what he did behind the scenes. He, he would never mind in practice to just absolutely rip into you and break you down. But he knew how to, use those you know maybe during practice he he 
in the flow, they call in the flow coaching. He knows how to build you back up during the practice. And he, he would do that through um, at training through a lot of players. And it was, it was sort of unbelievable because you would think the way he speaks to most people that you would never like him. But the way he builds them back up, it, it's literally like he just wanted to break break the puzzle apart and put it back together, make sure that all the spots are in the right place. And which means that when I go to him for advice, I get a very, you know, sarcastic answer. But at the same time, you know, I'll ask something at the beginning of a week and he'll absolutely, oh, wow, how do you not know that? Blah, 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 blah. But then throughout the week, I'll get messages from him saying, well, hey, here's this, this and this like adding on to what I was asking about. And it's just sort of tough love, basically. But it, for me, it's been very, very helpful. Um, I need someone like that because if I had someone that was always behind me saying, yeah, you can do it, you just got to do this, this, and this, then I'm, I'm, I don't know. I just like, I like when people tell me I can't do something because that's going to make me do it. And I think he knows that. And so he tries to always tell me you can't do this. And then gives little tidbits because he knows that I'm gonna be get pissed off and basically do it. Do you think so, that? Uh, do you think that to your coaching style or uh, you know, kind of your philosophy on coaching uh, in, in in any way, or do you see yourself being in kind of? Uh, having, I'd say you know, I'm more more different. I I don't like the whole like I I don't fit in the category of being able to rip the players apart and then put it back together. I'm more of a I'm, I'm about as blunt as it can be with the players. So if they do something bad, they're going to be, you know, I'm going to tell them I did it. They did something bad, but I, I guess it's, I don't know how to explain it, but I say it in a way that they know, they know they were wrong and they know they can do better. So they're going to work to do better, but it's also at the same time, you know, coaching is really, it's more psychology than anything. I, I truly believe it. Like it's, it's about reading each player. So he read, that I need to get, I need to be told I can't do it. He needs to piss me off and then I'm going to do it. Um, in terms of other players, maybe he had to be a bit nicer to him and he would do that. Um, and that's how I am. But I actually, <laughs> oddly enough, there was another coach that I had in my life that I absolutely did not like. And I, I liked nothing about him. He ran some of the best sessions I've ever seen, like in terms of setting up a practice and seeing what he was trying to get out. He was one of the best I've ever seen at setting up sessions. But in terms of he can set them up, but he couldn't teach them. It's like a teacher with a great lesson plan, but just can't connect it to the students. And that was him. And I actually learned a lot more off him than anyone else because I learned on how not to coach. I learned on how not to be, how not to speak to people, how, how to set up sessions, but how not to deliver them. Um, the best way to not get your players to listen to you, the, the best way to lose the locker room, to lose their respect and, by by watching him, that actually molded me more than anything because I absolutely did not like anything he did. And I wanted to make sure that I was never like that. And there was a moment in my career when I was when I first started that I found myself I felt like I was not like him, but during a game we were it was an intense game and I was I was trying to push the athletes a bit further than I probably should have. And I realized that I was like, wait, I'm, I'm being more like him. I need to stop that. And so that was a reflection that after that game, we ended up tying it when we should have won it. But after that game, I realized it was like, wow, you know what? It's my, it was my fault that we didn't because I, it was almost like what I was saying was coming off in a negative manner. So, um, and it, it happened a few times this year. 
the the days that I got mad at the refs are the games that my girls played worse. And the games that no matter what happened, even if I was mad at the refs that I tried to stay positive, the girls did better. And so what I learned was they feed off my energy. They feed off what I do. So if I stay positive, if I can keep pushing, then no matter the circumstances, they can. And so, I mean, we were under a, uh, we were under a weird situation this season. You know, we, we actually didn't get to start recruiting until February and you start preseason in August. So we're playing all these teams that I've been recruiting for a year, two years, three years plus. You know, they've they're got their recruits planned out. I had a tryout, and that was basically whoever showed up to my tryout was who we got, plus a couple extra ones that I just happened to know. Mm-hmm. And um, that was – it was a difficult thing for us, but we actually started off our season 2-0 and when we were expected not to win a game all season. So that was, that was an awesome piece. But then, you know, you face your trials and tribulations. So we lost our next – I think we started the 2-0 and and we lost our next four. And it was an eye-opener for all the girls. But we, we picked it up. We put it back together and um, ended up being a great season. We, we ended 4-5, and five, which, yeah, it's, a, it's not a 100% season. It's not a winning season technically. But for us, it was because it, we were just in a situation that it wouldn't – nothing not, – like we weren't expected to do anything and we did more. And – to, we only lost by one goal every game, and we went in double overtime twice. So it was one of those things where we were just – we were almost there, almost over the hump, but nobody was ever, ever able to just beat us. And so what we can now do is take the team we had this year, which is that core. We've created that culture, and we're trying to raise money to make sure we can go to uh, the beach for preseason because I'm at a JUCO school, so our turnaround is very – very big we have i think i had to bring in 15 girls this year um recruiting wise so you're getting basically a whole nother team so we were trying to keep the core we have add in these girls but we want to make sure that the new girls understand the culture so we want to make sure that during preseason they live with us for a week that way they can decide during the preseason if this is really for them because it's before school starts we start on august 1st and school doesn't start till august 25th so um, they'll have a good sense of if they if they belong in our dressing room. And that's why the big piece of the culture, the culture to me is so important, because if they don't buy into it, then no one will. And it, it's about all of us have to work for the same thing. They have to believe in the same ideas. And it, the girls, the girls have all bought into it. So it's I put a lot of pressure on my captains to make sure that they keep pushing it, that they keep getting the best out of them. So um, that's sort of where I am on that. And in terms of like, I guess back to the beginning of the mentorship question, I, I think it's massive. I think that speaking to people, even if you don't like people's suggestions, it doesn't mean you can't use them. Like there's things I've seen Pep Guardiola do that I'm like, wow, that's good, but I wouldn't do it that way. But it's more of tweaking things to fit your style. Um, your style is basically you, you got to get, Whatever your players have, you got to figure out how to get the best out of each player and tweak it to make it your way through your personality. Like the way I deliver a session is not going to be the same that if I wrote the session for you, if you saw me run a session, if you tried to run it the exact same way, it's not going to work because you're trying to run it in a way that's not you. So you need to make sure that you're running sessions in your way, even though you're seeing another coach do something else. 
you got to make sure that you put your personality into your delivery. It's the, you know, it's sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So you got to find your way to say it. And I think that through mentorship, through other coaches, I've, I've learned that I couldn't be like the coach I had before, but I knew I wasn't going to be like the coach I had, the other coach I had before. So I was able to take things I liked and disliked from both of them and learn from it. I, I love that a hundred percent. It's so funny. I, I've told other folks this too, that I've learned so much from, uh, you know, some of the bad coaches I've had along the way in terms of what I don't want to be as a coach. And exactly. when I find myself acting that way, uh, you know, it, the, the self-awareness and sort of the human psychology element of it, of hit, hitting the pause button and going, gosh, I'm kind of reverting to, you know, their behavior in a lot of ways. And uh, being able to make that pivot, whether it be dur during a match or a training session to sort of get back on course, um, because, you know, we, we all have to do it. And yeah, there are times where, you know, in a match or a training session, we're absolutely the best version of ourselves as a coach. Exactly. Uh, you know, we, we walk out of a uh, you know, off the pitch and we go, God, man, we were just, we were on fire today. Everything's clicking. There's also days and times where I've walked off the pitch or, you know, out of a gymnasium going, man, like what the hell happened today? Exactly. Why, you know, what, what, what about today was different than some of our previous sessions. And uh, I love the, the interest in sort of, uh, you know, the, the use of human psychology uh, that you employ uh, as, a, as a coach. Awesome. Um, so uh, a follow-up question. You, you started to talk about culture, and I think I know you well enough to say I had a feeling you were probably going to go there. Uh, <laughs> just because I, I know that is to you, Colton, and yeah. to, to, the, to the teams that you coach and the, you know, the men and women that, you, uh, that you're trying to develop. So I, I had a conversation recently with a, um, a friend of mine who uh, actually coached in, a, in another sport, and I asked him um, – does the, the team culture or the team dynamic, the coach, uh, him or herself, or is that by the players or is it sort of some combination thereof? And, um, you know, it, it turned into a really interest, interesting conversation. And he's hopefully going to be a future future uh, guest on the podcast. But, but what's it like for you? Who's, who determines that culture? How is it set? And, um, you know, how do you find those players that really fit in and buy into what you're trying to do? Yeah, so it's I so I'm big on sports psychology. It's so it's got to be I have a little bit of backstory before that anyone that listens to this could even understand what I'm about to try and say. Um, in terms of sports psychology, it's something I'm super interested in. I've always been interested in. I wrote my master's thesis on it. Um, if I do my PhD, I'm doing it in sports psychology. I just think that there's there's a thing in the there's something in the mind that takes us that pushes us somewhere else so for example um especially if there's players that listen to this how many people have played video games and gotten so pissed off that they lost but because they lost or because I, something makes them keep going back to it there's some sort of competitiveness that makes them always go back to it and so when i recruit to even start now, like, especially this is our first real, like, super recruiting class where we've gotten the full year to identify and go out. When I recruit, I've never once tried to convince a girl to come. And my assistant looks at me like I'm crazy half the time because of the things I say to the girls. But 
it's more to make sure that we're we're keeping a culture to get girls into it right my idea of our program is i i want it to be a program that girls want to be a part of not that i have to convince them to so when i go recruiting if i'm trying to convince everyone then i'm not sort of recruiting to what my vision is and so what i always tell every girl is i'm a backwards recruiter i'm going to tell you don't come because um like first off, I tell them don't come. I'm like, yeah, well, you this this isn't for everyone, and that's when a lot of people say, well, that's a weird thing to start off with. But I'm trying to find that thing that makes the kids go back to the video games. I'm trying to find that thing that's going to make this kid tick in our program. So by telling them not to come, and by telling them our program's not for everyone, if they're competitive and they're if they're willing to push themselves to prove that they can. Because we basically don't have a history here at Columbia State. So I tell them, don't come because we're looking for players that are going to – that have ambition, that aren't looking for recognition of going to a program just because that program's ranked or whatever. We're looking for players that are looking to make a statement, looking for players that are looking to take – sort of like me, take the less traveled path, looking for players that can come to Columbia State and write our legacy. If it's That means it's not for everyone. If you're not willing to – you know, step up and when times aren't the best um, and make the difference, then this isn't for you. And we usually attract by doing that. We attract the girls that, you know, they, they sort of that it, competitiveness clicks in their head. It's sort of reverse psychology because they're like, wait a minute. He's basically telling me that I think I'm too good to write a legacy of a program. So then they're like, you know what? I want the challenge. I do want to come. And that was a, a big piece of starting our culture. But I guess what, <laughs> to your original question, in the culture, it's sort of defined by, uh, I always tell the girls that I'm only going to treat you with the respect you give me, and I, and I would expect the same. So I hold myself to a standard. And the way that we did this at the very beginning of the season, I got it from Coach K, I think, from uh, Kentucky Basketball. And... He had said something when he worked with the U.S. Uh, US Olympic team for the men. He said that when he had LeBron James and all of them in the locker room, he made them sit down and write standards for themselves. Like they're setting their own standards. So I had all of our girls sit down and we wrote our own standards. And what those standards were was, you know, we're always at practice on time. Um, our grades are got to be good and things like that. And so basically I wanted – in that way, I took all their, all their writing, all their standards, and I, I wrote sort of a speech, but it wasn't a speech, but it was basically a speech written in their words that I was delivering. And it was, so girls, if you want to be a part of this program, we need to be at practice on time. We need to blah, 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 whatever their standards were. And that was sort of how we set the tone of our culture. So it was the players, but I sort of used their words and put them – in my context and that sort of was what helped formulate what we were trying to do. If that makes any sense at all. Um, uh, I was going to say it, it definitely does. And uh, I, I love where you're going with that. Yeah. Uh, go ahead and, and continue. Yeah. So that's sort of it. It also means that it's, it wasn't me saying, um, you know, this is how I'm going to do it. This is me. It was me saying when, whenever I held a girl accountable for those standards, 
it was me saying this is what yes it was my expectation from the beginning but this was your team's expectation and you have broken something that your team did that way it was less on me it wasn't our coach just wants me to do that it was you're right that was us that decided that so it kind of gives the girls standards in that now I do speak with I, I speak with all of them I'm very clear very transparent and I've told them all straight away because I know some girls are going to be like, well, if we break this rule and this girl breaks this rule, how come the punishments aren't the same? But it's the, it's the way in which you break the rule or how you break a rule. So I always tell the girls that things are going to always be situational. If they don't like the result, fine, speak to me. But um, all in all, I'm going to make a decision based on it. And most of the time I don't even have to, but there's times like in practice where you know, we did get competitive girls, so they get mad and practice at each other. They are getting over competitive. But I sacrifice practice time to make sure that we stop. We analyze what's going on in practice. So why why is this person being so much more negative this time? And what we'll end up finding out is that there's other life situations that maybe stressed out this person, which pushed them another way. But it helps the players that were getting pissed off at her for being so upset. Um, understand why she was being the way she was so they're not mad at each other anymore and they let her vent to get that off her shoulders then we can continue practice some coaches say well that's a waste of time they don't need to be doing that but in reality if that player is going to continue doing that you continue practice or even if you kick them off you kick them off the field you lose them probably for the next week until they especially girls because they're going to hold it against you but if you go through it you sacrifice that 15 minutes if it takes that long then you can then you'll probably in the next 10 minutes after that talk get more than you would have in the next hour if you didn't stop. And so that's sort of one of the things we do to make sure that things always stay clicked in. Um, I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. We just, it, everything that I do is very situational. I'll, if it's a practice that I noticed that maybe the day before there was a bit more negativity than I would have liked I did something called buddy system practice where everybody drew a name out of a bag and they're not allowed to tell anyone who their player was that was that they picked up their name. But at the end of practice, each player had to try and choose who was their buddy. So basically the player that picked up their name had to try and um, cheer them on a little bit more than what they normally would in a positive way. Not in an obvious way where it's all, yes, yes, Jason, great job, great job. You know, it's more of a, you're you're their support but you're not supposed to make it so obvious but it was kind of funny to see that you know at the end what they found out was by by knowing that they had to be more positive to one player they were more positive to everyone and it was really hard to pick out who was picking out who and we actually had those best practices because they were being more positive to each other and they had that mindset that they have to be positive to at least this person and if they're not positive to that person, then obviously they're not going to get picked. And they want to make sure that they get picked because they get a point, even though the point doesn't really matter. But they, they get they get to know that the other player knew without them making it obvious that they were their buddy. And by doing that, they had to – it was sort of a mindset change where they were like, wait a minute, I need to be positive to everyone. Otherwise, I could accidentally be negative to someone else, and that could be my partner, and they won't pick me. So – sort of an inside game inside their head before practice even started. And those were the best practices we ever had. 
I was going to say for anybody listening to this, uh, make sure they go back and replay that portion. Uh, that, <laughs> in the words of uh, of Seinfeld, or, or from an episode of Seinfeld, uh, you know, gold, Jerry, gold. Uh, <laughs> because uh, absolutely, I mean, you're creating buy-in, and you're you're creating people that are or a culture where people are invested in what you're doing. And when you don't have that. Uh, you know the the wheels come off and uh, the the program doesn't advance the uh, the players don't advance um, you know it just it just doesn't go anywhere so um, uh, one thing I wanted to ask about and I have complete admiration because this is something that I've had to work at in my life because I I don't necessarily know if it's my default setting but I'm trying to make it my default setting. You are an incredibly positive person. Uh, you are an incredibly positive coach, uh, Colton. Have you always been that way? Uh, if it, is it something you have to work at? Um, do you just wake up and say, hey, this is who I am and let's go? Um, so now I don't work at it. Now it just happens. But I, I honestly, <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound crazy. But my freshman, sophomore year of college, I was a bit more wild. I was out having fun, blah, 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 blah. But my, my regular personality was I've always been as authentic as I could be. Even maybe I just didn't do it in the positive way I do now, which means that I, I've always, I'll always speak what's on my mind no matter what. And sometimes it still gets me in trouble. But I used to not word it right. You know, they've always said, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. I never used to word it right. And I, I never knew what was going on. I never... I, I don't know. I think after my injuries, it humbled me a lot. It really did. But then there was a moment after my injuries, I had been coaching a bit and I was working what you were talking about positivity. I was working on positivity then, but I took a, I just took like a, I went studied abroad in Argentina and basically when I went to Argentina, I went to just learn Spanish, whatever. I went to a school there. Um, I had been an ambassador for my school, so I had always shown people around and basically the people that try and convince the people to come to the school that aren't athletes. And I didn't know I could get a scholarship for it, so I never asked for a scholarship for it. I just did it. And the school came to me one day and said, we're going to lose our partnership with this school in Argentina if we don't send students because no one's went in a while. Would you like to go? I said, yeah, I would, but I can't afford it. And they said, that's not what we're asking you. Would you go if we, get, if we paid? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went. And long story short, I found out that the city I was in was where Messi was born, where Messi played at Newell Soul Boys. Messi's one of my favorite players ever. And I was like, well, okay, let's see. I got to where I was in Argentina and I didn't know anyone. My host, my host family was the only host family that actually had one parent that could speak English. And it's because his dad was English and helped work on the railroads whenever the English went into Argentina and actually it's kind of a history lesson on why all the Argentines are white and long story short there, his dad was also one of the founders of Newell's Old Boys. So it's one of the first Argentine, one of the only Argentine teams with an English name. And I asked him, so what you, do you have any pool at Newell's? Like if I could do anything, I would, you know, in my free time here, instead of going and, you know, looking at all the parks and all the history stuff, I'd like to kind of see if I could work at Newell's and do anything. I'll, I don't care. I'll be a janitor. I just want to be around the club. And he went and started asking, and it turns out that the 
Newell's Old Boys training ground and game uh, facility is all in the middle of something called Park of Day Independencia. And that park is divided into four four quadrants where basically each culture that came into Argentina, the the Italians, the Argentines, the French, and the what's the other, Spanish, all have a quadrant in that park, Parque de Independencia, and in the middle of the park is the stadium. Well, um, he asked around, and then my international advisor asked around because she, she had worked a lot with Newell's, and I ended up getting to pick up cones, and I was just picking up cones there for them, and I would, they would joke with me, and I never knew what they were saying until I could finally speak and understand a bit of Spanish, and then I, once I, I started being able to speak a bit more, they let me... I made friends with the coaches. They let me sort of be a buddy coach on a session. Maybe I wasn't just picking up cones. Maybe I got to hand the bibs out and stuff as well. And then once my Spanish got a bit better, they let me start running a few sessions. But after, like, I don't know what it was, but when I got back from Argentina, I was a completely different person. Like, I was a 3.2 GPA when I finished my sophomore year. When I started my junior year on my senior year, so – that summer when I was gone in Argentina, well, a little bit before summer because I left a bit early. Um, when I came back, it was like my life was changed. Everything was in order. I, my positivity was always there. Um, I never had to work at it again. And sort of my, my GPA went from a, a 3.2 on average for the first two years to a 4.0 for the next two years. And then all of a sudden, I hated school. I'm not a, I'm not a academic, but... The only reason I went and got my master's was because if I want to be a head coach somewhere at a bigger school, I need a master's first. But also, I hate when people tell me I don't understand something because I'm not educated enough. So I wanted to go get my education so people couldn't tell me that anymore. Turns out I got my 4.0 for my master's degree. And I was like, well, okay, I'm not too bad at this school thing. But it sort of, I don't know what happened. Something clicked when I was in Argentina and my life's been different ever since. I think it was just, I think it was a time of my life where I didn't have any expectations. I just, I just kind of went. And when I came back, it was like, I hadn't had any, I hadn't stayed in touch with anyone from home except for my mother. Cause she always wanted to make sure I was safe, but I wanted to make sure that I, I fully lived inside their culture, understood their culture. And just, I don't know, I guess I got a different worldly perspective on life and it just changed me when I came back. Oh, yeah, and I I love what you said. The not only the the cultural experience of, of going to Argentina, I, I can only imagine uh, what that was like, and especially uh, you know where uh, arguably one of the the greatest soccer players uh, you know was born and developed. And uh, well, and I'm a Liverpool supporter, and Maxi Rodriguez, who, who was a god for Liverpool, yeah. played at Newell's Old Boys while I was there, so I actually got to meet Maxi Rodriguez. <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah. Um, but I I, I love the willingness in the, I, I guess I would humility uh, because it, as coaches, sometimes we can say, well, you know, uh, I, you know, do I have to pick up cones? Do I have to put the bids on players? Do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? The humility to say, I'll do whatever it takes, right? I'll be the janitor. I'll clean up the cones. I'll uh, put the bids on the players. Um, I, I, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And folks who have reached out to me at different times that are, um, you know, early on in their coaching career, that's part of the advice that I've offered to them is do literally whatever it takes. 
if it means tying players' shoes, if it means getting water bottles, if it means, you know, helping get the keeper ready and, uh, you know, warm them up, I mean, whatever, it doesn't matter, but show a willingness and a humility to do it. And I love hearing that story of, uh, of going to, a, you know, a, a foreign place for you and, um, you know, just the, the willingness to jump in and, and do whatever it takes. I, I think that's absolutely yeah. awesome. And, you know, the piece of it is like where, where, where it comes back to the whatever it takes. If, if we track back to where I talked about the Red Bulls are going to Florida and doing the tournament job, a lot of people would choose the Red Bulls piece. But the, I guess a little bit of background, the, the, the guy in Florida, he actually was the West Brom Academy director for like 10 years. So he was a good name, a very big name, and um, someone that a lot of people knew anyway. So it was a, it was a networking piece, but the, it was the tournament director piece that – opened up a lot more things than people could have imagined. So, yes, I went to Argentina, but we actually ended up running a tournament um, called Copa Rayados, which is Monterey Rayados, which is one of the biggest Mexican teams in the world. Um, they're in the same city as Tigres, so they're very – those two are big rivals. But um, we ran Copa Rayados, which basically is in Texas. It's the biggest youth international tournament in the country. And – of the Rayados and all the Rayados coaches come in because they bring their team as well. The Rayados actually come to Houston every year and um, their academies play, but they're also recruiting like sort of Mexican-Americans from that tournament in Texas to go to, to um, Monterey. Well, I guess aside in a story, a story on that is their academy director is Argentine and he was from Rosario, which is where I was. And so when I got to make that connection with him, I actually got to work in Mexico with Monterey Rayados. Because of that, I had a little bit of Spanish. The academy director was Argentine, so I was able to, to connect with him on a level that, you know, Mexico is much different from Argentina. So he loved talking about Argentina. Argentine is the most prideful people I've ever met in my life. But, um, you know, it all started with me going on a weekend because our coach told us we can make some money. And sitting on the sideline, calling out scores. So as soon as the club game ended, I had to go headquarters. Um, you're at Beadling. So I could say Beadling 3, Tennessee Soccer Club 1. That was all I did. And it led from being a field marshal to running. The, I actually ran the American side of the company. I did all the American teams. We had another guy did all the Mexican teams. And that's how we threw our, our tournaments together. But I, I went to Naples, Florida every year. We have a tournament in Naples. We had three in Tennessee, three in Alabama, one in Texas, and we're, there's supposed to be one coming up in Panama City. I don't work with them anymore, but I'm, I was just one of the leading people in starting that company up, and so I always keep connected with, with that sort of – with the owner, and I think networking is a big piece, but going back to doing whatever it takes, I was a field marshal and ended up running a company. You never know where, you know, the little things can take you. They add up and they'll make big differences. And that's, that's something that always happened in my life. I never knew picking up cones would lead to getting to do an academy session to being able to put, you know, Newell Soul Boys Academy Director on my resume for reference. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so having been abroad and uh, obviously working in a, a number of capacities here in the States, and you know, I think I saw something uh, you had tweeted out recently that, you know, you work with players as young as U6 all the way to the collegiate players. 
Yes. Uh, what What are we doing right, uh, and what are we doing wrong here in the in the United States uh, in terms of developing players, soccer culture, um, you know, uh, moving the, moving the game forward? Um, what we're doing wrong is being negative. Well, everyone says everything in the U.S. that we're doing is wrong, and that's not true. The reality is, we're not in a time zone right now that development is good. We're just now reaching it in the next couple of years. And what I mean by that is basketball, baseball, and football are very great sports here in America. Would you agree? Yep. Very big, very competitive, very our top sports easily. Yep. yep. Everybody's parent played basketball. They played football or they played baseball. Maybe it was softball, but they all played it. Now on the women's side, which is this is where I'm making the connection. The women's side, the moms always played soccer. It was soccer or softball for them. Very rarely did they do basketball. They definitely didn't do football, which means that most of your rec coaches on the girls' side, the moms had actually played before. So they had a bit of experience. So they were able to sort of deliver some some good sessions at the rec level. And then when they decided to play club, well, those coaches are pretty good over there because on the women's side and the women that are in it, they're better than, you know, some of the volunteer men because the volunteer men were baseball dads. They were football dads. Mm-hmm. They don't know soccer. They're trying to learn it. We're just now hitting the part in America now where your rec coaches, your volunteer coaches actually played when they were kids. And that is a mass. People don't realize it, but that's a massive advantage to other countries. Everybody had played soccer growing up. Everyone knows the game. They know enough to say that they don't agree with Jurgen Klopp's um, sideline most of the most of the older men in america could not even care less who's on our national team much less know how to set them up because they weren't soccer people growing up so we're just now hitting it where the kids are growing up around people that actually lived soccer so there's there's no secret as to why we're unbelievably on the women's side of course women's coaches on the women's side always had soccer growing up so we're, we're now going to start hitting a, a different turn where, you know, whoever the head coach is, when this – we're doing a slow uphill climb on the men's side. But whoever the head coach is for the U.S., when, the, when he doesn't even do anything on it really, when all the rec coaches are former players officially, when yeah, that's easy to say that every volunteer is basically a former player, he's going to get credit for the U.S. getting so much better when in reality – it was just the, the level of coaching when the kids were at their youngest was better. Uh, kids saturate more when they're younger. Um, and I think when I spoke with you the first time, I spoke with you about planting a seed. Mm-hmm. And I think that the seed being planted now in comparison to the seed that's going to be planted in about three years at the rec level, we're going to have a lot more retention. We're going to have a lot more information, better information. Players are going to have a better understanding. And you're going to see the seed being planted sprout because more coaches are educated now. There's more, there's more of us out there. So you're going to see continuation of watering and the seed is going to, is going to flourish. And that's the players and whoever's the head coach of the U S at the time is going to get full credit for it. But reality is he's not going to have done anything to change it. Um, I just think that we're in a, we're in a moment now where the only thing I think the U S can do to help push this forward is, Maybe lower the prices of their coaching courses first off. Um, 
because it, they they are expensive, and if you it's it, they it's like they don't understand supply and demand. Yes, if there's less of you, you need to make it a bit more costly so you can keep something running, but you don't need to make it so overpriced that people just don't do it. And that's what a lot of people are doing now. And I think that if they lower the prices, and even we have a USDA for for players, why don't we have an academy for coaches? Why don't they select specific coaches that apply for it? have to prove that they've done so much, but why don't they take younger coaches in it, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, and put them through an academy-style coaching clinic where they're buddy coaching the academy coaches, sort of making it like a grad assistant for the USSF, and basically have an academy for coaches where when coaches get old and retire, you've already groomed coaches rather than betting on another one. It's, it's sort of like, you know, the old... TV series you when you're watching it they always have like apprentices and they always appoint the apprentice after they leave well we don't do that we just appoint whoever we think is the next best instead of cultivating that seed and then appointing someone that we know we've been grooming and i think that's a big difference you're uh you're you're making way too much sense (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, i i I think that's a uh probably a good place to leave it uh because yes i i couldn't agree more uh with uh with what you said and i think um and, and i'm guilty of it too i uh you know the the hiring of the the recent uh, men's coach uh, you know, I, I tweeted out something that it, it really didn't move the needle for me uh but you know taking a step back from it i, I think you're hitting on some good stuff there in terms of um you know the, the trickle down effect i know i've seen it uh in my coaching experience that um folks at least with some soccer background are now engaging in the game uh, in, in a coaching role and uh, becoming more involved in a, a young player's development. So I, I think that's yeah. a, a good place to leave it. Um, so if, uh, if people want to connect with you, Colton, uh, how can they do that? Um, well, my, my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook's all the at is at coach Colton. At, so it's at coach and then C O L T O N. Um, but you can go on Columbia state athletics and find a, um, my email on there, or you can always go on, um, www.premierfootballtech.com and it's football f-u-t-b-o-l uh, I tried to put my Spanish background in a little bit f-u-t-b-o-l and then tech.com um, then that's that's my academy website so anyone's able to go on there I don't have it all perfect yet um, life's going 100 miles an hour but I'm, I'm trying to get where more sessions are uploaded on there um, I do have a recruiting database I'm trying to figure out how to get all their profiles on there but I, I also in a sort of a recruiting bit where I don't charge as much as some of the other websites, but I'll try and use my networking connections to get people recruited. So you're able to connect with me a lot of different ways. That's for sure. (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, Colton, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for coming on today and, um, yeah, man, all the best. Uh, I, I'm a massive fan of your work and, uh, nothing but success going forward. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. My sincere thanks to Columbia State Community College women's head soccer coach, Colton Bryant, for coming on the latest episode of On the Touchline. It was really great to catch up with him and uh, give his take on some of the things happening in the game of soccer. If you have a chance, give Colton a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Coach Colton. 
I'll be sure to include that in uh, today's show notes uh, for this latest episode. This is also a listener-supported podcast, and you can support this show in one of two ways, by going to anchor.fm slash on the touchline, all one word, and you can make a small monthly contribution to help us grow the podcast uh, and keep doing what we're doing. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, doing this as the host of the show. Second way is that you can subscribe to this podcast through Anchor, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or Spotify. Uh, we are now on nine different podcasting platforms. So um, very happy that we've been able to expand the show and grow the show that way. But it would mean the world if you leave a five-star review, share it out on social media. Uh, encourage you to use the hashtag on the touchline that helps us grow the show and helps other coaches, players, and influencers in the game of soccer uh, find what we're trying to do with this podcast. I have some great episodes lined up uh, that will be showing up very soon uh, in your feed and I uh, hope that you'll enjoy them. You know, we cover a lot of ground on this podcast and uh, think that you will uh, really like the guests that are coming your way here in the near future. For On the Touchline podcast, this has been your host, Jason Broadwater. Until next time. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.